We're in Philippians chapter 2 as we continue on our study of the book of Philippians. It's a wonderful passage. It's actually a, one of these passages that's a little hard to understand at first. Makes a lot of sense what you get into it. But it is one that has caused angst amongst people and believers for, for centuries. This is what he says in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, what on God's green earth is he talking about here? Work out your salvation. I thought salvation was a free gift. I thought salvation that we couldn't earn it or deserve it. And if you thought that, you're right. It is a free gift. So what does he mean by work out your salvation? Now, to understand it, there are two key theological pieces that you need to understand. The first one is this, that when the New Testament uses the word salvation, the root of it is sozo. It's a Greek term. It basically means deliverance. That's the idea. But when you and I read it, we always kind of read the same meaning into it of, of being saved by grace but really, when Paul uses it, he uses it in three different ideas of our salvation. The first is kind of what we think about. It is salvation past. It is that we accepted Christ. We were saved. The theological term is we were justified. We were forgiven. We were made righteous before God. We were made his child. That's, that's that idea that I have been saved. Right? That's the first way it uses it. For instance, Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. That's what we think of. That's part of the meaning of the verse. Romans 1.16 puts it like this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is power of God unto salvation. He's talking about justification there. Everyone who believes. That's the first meaning of the word. The second meaning of the word is salvation present. It's not justification. And by the way, can I just remind you that's where it starts? If you've not come to faith in Jesus, accepted him as your savior, understood that his death on the cross is the only means by which we have right standing before God, that's where it begins. And, and the rest of this is not going to apply to you. It all starts there. That's where it begins. But for those of us who have been justified, now we have been saved from sin's penalty. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear hell. That's justification. Now we're in the process of sanctification, where God is through the power of the Spirit in our life is saving us from the power of sin. That we don't have to live in bondage to sin anymore. We don't have to live in, in all of the negativity that sin brings in our life. And that's that idea that I am presently, as I walk after Jesus, I'm being made more like him, that I am being saved. Now again, not justification, this is sanctification. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. First Timothy chapter 4. He says this, pay close attention to yourself. He's talking to Timothy, his son in the faith. Timothy's been justified. He said, pay attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do, you will ensure salvation. 
Not justification, that's done. But your sanctification, ensure sanctification both for yourself and for those that hear you, that you will live free from sin in this world. That's the idea. First Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes, you've been justified, you've been born into family God, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Same word there. He's not talking justification. He's talking about growth. He's talking about becoming more like Christ. This is sanctification. Does that make sense? So justification, you're saved from the penalty of sin. We don't fear death. Hell is taken out. We've been justified. Sanctification is that we have been saved from the power of sin in our life. And we're being saved from that power of sin as we follow after Jesus. There's a third piece, and it's future. The theological term is glorification. And this is where we will be saved from the very presence of sin. (laughs) Boy, that's going to be a good day, right? No more sin, no more sorrow, no more heartache, no more pain, no more death. Man, on that day, and we look forward, but the word salvation is used. For instance, Romans 13, 11, do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep for now salvation. Not justification, not sanctification, but glorification. Now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Hebrews puts it like this. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, by the way, that's justification, will appear a second time for what? Salvation. Why? Without reference to sin, because we're going to go be with him. We're going to be lifted now, delivered from the very presence of sin. Does that all make sense to you? Okay, so that's the first thing you've got to understand. The second thing you have to understand is that the scripture is clear. Justification is a free gift, right? Are you, are you all tracking with me here? Come on, I haven't preached in two weeks. I need a little feedback here, right? For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. That's what justification is. It is no cost to us. Jesus paid it all. We just celebrated that. Sanctification, ah, that comes with a great cost. Jesus said, hey, if you want to follow after me, you got to deny yourself daily, pick up your cross, and follow me. Paul put it like this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Great cost. Now, let's put this back into the context. The central theme of this whole passage we continually go back to is verse 27 of chapter 1. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally, live as a citizen of heaven. That just like the people in Philippi were really citizens of Rome, what he's trying to say is you live here in Philippi, but you're really a citizen of heaven. Live as a citizen of heaven. How do you do that? Well, we talked about live in humility, right? Back in verses 3 and 4. Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. See others as more important than yourself. Don't just look after your own things, but look on the things of others. Humility. Oh, by the way, here's a great example. Jesus, who was God, sat in the glory. He humbled himself and became like us. Then he even humbled himself more and became obedient to the point of death. Death on the cross. 
at what does verse 12 say? So then, my beloved, by the way, believers here, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. This is what he's trying to say. Live as a citizen of heaven. Work out what it means to live like Jesus today in your culture. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven here? What does that look like? What would Jesus do? It was interesting, I was talking to Wade about the culture there in Nicaragua. And as I mentioned, they're wonderful people, very warm. Uh, You're just going to love meeting, you're going to fall in love with them. But Wade was telling me there's an interesting piece in their culture is that there is an expectation that when a man marries that he either already has a girlfriend on the side or that he will get one. And that is just accepted and a piece of expectation in their culture. And so you think about the Lord talking to them, Paul talking to them and saying, now listen, live as a citizen of heaven. What would that mean to them in their culture? Where for a man, wouldn't it mean that I live faithfully to my wife? That I keep only into her, that I love her as Jesus loved me and loved the church? Yeah. So let me ask you, what does it mean to work out your salvation today? It means, how do I live like Jesus in this culture in which we live? In this culture of promiscuity, this culture of of porn. Yeah, Jesus said, if you even look upon a woman to lust after, what does that mean? How do I live out Jesus in this culture that has no problem stretching truth, twisting truth? Let's be honest, lying (laughs) to make me look better, to always bring my, what does it mean to live like Jesus here? What does it mean to live as a citizen of heaven? What does it mean to to live in honesty and and don't bear false truth with my neighbor? that's, That's his whole point here. You and I have got to figure out how do we live as citizens of heaven here? And here's the thing. The secret is not rocket science. The secret is simply this. You got to live in obedience. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, always obeyed, not only in my presence, but in my absence. Folks, if I'm going to live like Jesus, maybe it's as simple as doing what he told us to do, right? What did Jesus tell us to do? Well, uh, first thing he told us, number one, was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Maybe that's what it means to live out and work out our salvation here. How do I love God with all my heart and soul? He told me to love my neighbor as myself. He told me that as believers, I need to love you even as he's loved me. Jesus told us that we shouldn't let bitterness come in our heart, but we should forgive 70 times 7. Jesus told us that we ought to go make disciples of all nations. Folk, it's just not that hard. How do we work out our salvation? We work it out by walking in obedience to what God has told us to do. We live it out. We live as citizens of heaven here. Now, he uses a really interesting phrase here at the end of verse 12. One that, again, culturally is not a good one for us. It calls with fear and trembling. 
You know, in our culture in America, we don't talk much about fear and trembling when it comes to our relationship with God. We like to talk about him being our friend, right? He's closer than a brother, that he loves us. I mean, we start to, you know, we teach little kids, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And guess what? It's true. He does love us. He does want to be a friend. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. But there's another piece. He's God. Just like we just saw in the verses before that he was God, became a man, he is God. And with that, there ought to be awe. There ought to be reverence. There ought to be that understanding. Solomon told us the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so again, let's put it into context. Live as a citizen of heaven. That's what we're called to do. And he gives this incredible example of Jesus, who though he was God, came, he humbled himself. But notice verse 9, for this reason God also has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We obey with fear and trembling because Jesus is Lord. Now we love to look forward to that day when all of those people even in our life, you know, those ones who rail against us, those ones who claim to be atheists, will bow their knee, right? But the reality is, as a follower of Jesus, what, what makes me different is that today is the day that I bow my knee. Today is the day that I say, Jesus, you are Lord. I'm going to obey what you've asked me to do. And even though I may not understand why it would be right, your word says it, so I obey. And even though it may not be convenient to me, I'm going to obey. And even though it might even bring harm to me, because I'm in this place where I've been told I either renounce Christ or they're going to kill me, I, I, I've got to obey. Because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one in control. And so today, we bow our knee in obedience, in that humble obedience, just like Jesus was humbly obedient to the Father. Now you and I, in our humble obedience, bow our knee to Jesus. And we do what he asks us to do. We follow where he asks us to go. We walk in obedience to what his word tells us. Because we understand that Jesus is Lord. He's the God of the universe. We also understand we're going to stand before him one day. You know, it's amazing to me how many Christians don't get this. They know that the unsaved, the unbelievers, will stand and give an account and be judged according to their works. Do you know that the same is true for us as Christians? Now, it's not a matter of justification. It's not a matter of whether we get into heaven or not. That's been settled. We, we belong to him. But as a believer, I too will stand before him. But this now is for reward. 
Paul talks about it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for we must all, he's talking to Christians here, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may be recompensed for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. You know, on that day, we will stand. And again, it's not to be, are we getting to heaven or hell? Now that's settled in justification. But this is for reward. The picture there is the Bema seat. It was the Olympic Games. It was the judge who would watch and we give the award to those who ran the fastest, who finished the course. Every one of us who knows Jesus, who are the children of God, are going to stand and give an account. In fact, it's very interesting. So Paul says this. You know what he says next? Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? We obey because Jesus is Lord. Folk, can I just remind you that your life to mat- today matters. What we do here, you know, sometimes people have this idea that as Christians, well, I'm saved. I, I know I'm going to heaven and we're just kind of sitting here twiddling our thumbs, waiting for the roll to be called up yonder. That, that's not what it means to live as a citizen of heaven. We live as a citizen of heaven. We know that we're here on mission. We're here to love Jesus, to become like him. We're, to, we're here to tell others. We're here to plant churches. We're here to take the gospel. That's what we're here to do. And so my living for him is both important to me, but it's also important to the people around me that need to hear Jesus, but it's also important to Jesus. In fact, so important that one day he's going to recognize it and reward it. Let's skip on down now to verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Obedience leads to our good and to God's glory. You know, it's amazing to me the number of Christians that when you start talking about we've got to submit, we've got to bow our knee, that we have to obey. It's almost like they get this horrendous look on their face. Like, well, that sounds miserable. And you think about it. I don't even ask them, doesn't Jesus love you? Well, yeah. I mean, it's what we sung about all morning. It's what the whole passage is about, that he left heaven's glory and became one of us and then even went to the cross to bear our sin. Yeah, he loves us. So, So you're trying to tell me the God who loves you so much that he came and took your sin upon him and bore it before his father and died and, and all of that, now that you belong to him, he wants to make your life miserable. That makes no sense. And it makes no sense. That's why Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it to the full, abundantly. And what Jesus knows is that, by the way, the way to live it to the full is live in alignment. That's why, hey, what's the number one thing? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because you were made as an image bearer of God. And oh, by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because relationships are the most important thing here. 
And that's why he tells us to forgive because he knows that when we don't forgive, it's a cancer to our soul. He doesn't want your life to be miserable. He wants your life to be the full, but that comes when we surrender our lives in obedience to what he has told us to do. For it is God. God's for you, folk. He's not against you. He wants your best. That's why he calls us to obedience. And the beautiful thing is when you say, look at this, he says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. You know, God has a plan for your life. Do you know that? He's got a plan for your life. It's really simple. His plan for your life is that you become like Jesus. Romans 8, 29, we look at it all the time. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's trying to do here. You know, sometimes you start talking about the will of God and people just get freaked out about it. I've met some people, I, I seriously think they stand at their, you know, in their closet each morning and say, does God want me to wear this shirt? Does God want me to wear that shirt? God want me to buy this car or that car? Can I tell you, I don't think God really cares, you know? He's given us, as long as it's obedience, I mean, obviously, it ought to be a shirt that's uh, modest. It ought to be a shirt that doesn't say something profane, okay? With fall, but within those parameters of what he's told us, there's probably a lot of freedom there. And that's the whole idea here, is that God's not so concerned about, do I work at this job or that job? What God's concerned about is, am I becoming like Jesus? Is that process of sanctification happening in my life? In fact, here I'll give you a promise. You walk every day with Jesus to the best of your ability. You walk in obedience to him, and you will never miss the will of God in your life. Never. Never. God will always get you to where he wants you to be. He goes, Steve, how do you know? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Guess what? He's going to direct your path. People come to me and say, listen, I've got this opportunity. I'm praying for God's wisdom. The scripture I'll always pray over them is Psalm 121. It's a song of ascent. It says, I will lift up my eyes into the mountains. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. You walk with Jesus, and you walk to the best of your ability in obedience to what he's asked you to do. You will never miss the will of God in your life. Why? Because he's working in you both to will and to work. The Holy Spirit is within us empowering us to walk. In fact, you say, well, Steve, how does that work? Well, here's the thing. Some of you I lost back when I talked about obedience. Because all of a sudden you got thinking and it's kind of taken over your thought process because there's this, maybe it's a little thing, maybe it's a big thing, I don't know, but there's a piece of disobedience in your life that you know God wants you to be doing something else than what you're doing, and you just can't get rid of that. And you have to go back with me and notice I haven't gotten into many pieces of obedience here. I've tried purposely to stay at the 50,000 foot picture today. So the point that you're all hung up on this one piece, it ain't Steve. It's the Holy Spirit. He is working in you 
to work his will and his good pleasure. His good pleasure and his will is that you become like Jesus, that you would walk in obedience because he loves you. And, and in fact, sometimes people come back and say, God really spoke to my heart today, and they'll begin to tell me what, and I'm thinking, I didn't say any of that. I have no idea who they were listening to. Pretty good. A couple of times I wrote it down. I'll add it next time. But I didn't say it. You know why? Because it's not Steve. It's the Holy Spirit who's working in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. His good pleasure is you become like Jesus. Now here's the thing. You've got to answer the question. Because it's gnawing in you. Am I going to do my own thing? Am I going to keep justifying it as being right? And I'm going to keep walking my way? Or am I in humility going to bow my heart before the Lord of the universe and say, okay, God, you tell me it's wrong. I may not even understand it, but your word is clear, and so I'm going to agree with you it's wrong. And I repent and I confess it and I'm asking you for your help that I could walk in obedience. Folk, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here in verse 12. Now, not in my presence only, but how much more in my absence work out your salvation. Live like Jesus. Live as a citizen of heaven. How would Jesus do this? Walk in obedience. That's what we're called to do.